Good evening. Good to be together tonight. Yeah, is this is this mic on? Perfect. I think I'm going to stay put tonight. I was a little bit late on grabbing this mic right here, so I think I'm just going to stay put behind the podium. That's okay. But good to be together tonight. I know that this weekend in many ways has uh, been a hard one, especially thinking about yesterday and the anniversary that we're remembering, but I'm thankful to be together as the body of Christ, to be able to spend time and worship together. We're going to continue our study of the Gospel of Mark tonight. So if you have your copy of God's Word and you'd like to follow along with me, we're going to be looking at just one verse, and that's Mark chapter 9 and verse number 1. If you have your Bible and you'd like to turn there, Mark chapter 9, and together we're going to be looking at verse number 1. As we get ready to consider what Jesus tells his disciples in Mark chapter 9 and verse 1, consider the question, who is Jesus? There are a number of different ways that we could answer that question this evening when it comes to Jesus' identity as we think about who Jesus is. But one way that we need to answer that as we consider Mark chapter 9 and verse 1 is that Jesus is our King. That's the way that Paul says it in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 17 to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Then you go over to Revelation chapter 19 and verse 16, where Jesus is identified as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Who is Jesus? Jesus is our king. As Christians, we serve a king and his name is Jesus. As king, Jesus reigns over a kingdom. Consider what the New Testament has to say about that kingdom. John chapter 18 and verse 36. Jesus says a couple of different times that his kingdom is not of this world. Jesus' kingdom is not like any other kingdom that we experience in this life. It's not a physical kingdom. It's not a kingdom that has physical boundaries. No, Jesus as king reigns over a spiritual kingdom, a kingdom that is not from this world. What does Jesus' kingdom look like? If we had to describe that kingdom, if we had to give adjectives, what would they be? Well, Romans 14 and verse 17 says that Jesus' kingdom is one of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Think about how valuable Jesus' kingdom is. In Matthew 13 and verse number 44, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Doesn't that parable communicate to us powerful ideas about the worth, the value of Jesus's kingdom? It is worth giving everything up for. He says that again in verses 45 and 46. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Jesus is our King. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords, reigning over his spiritual kingdom. A kingdom that's defined by righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. A kingdom that should be more important to us than anything else in our lives. So as we look at the words of Mark chapter 9 and verse number 1, let's talk about that kingdom. Specifically, let's talk about the coming of Jesus' kingdom. When will Jesus' kingdom come? Has Jesus' kingdom come already? 
Well, once again, let's notice Jesus says to his disciples, Mark chapter 9 and verse 1, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. When you look at this verse, it's written in a context where Jesus is preparing his disciples for what's going to happen in the immediate future. If you go back in your Bible to Mark chapter 8 and verse number 31, Jesus for the first time in the gospel of Mark began to teach his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And then he continues on in verse number 34 to begin teaching his disciples about discipleship, what discipleship looks like. That's verses 34 through 38. Then we find this statement in Mark chapter 9 and verse 1 about the coming of Jesus' kingdom. The first few words that Jesus speaks in verse 1, truly I say to you. Jesus uses that phrase to point forward to what he's about to say, to place emphasis on what he's about to say. Jesus is about to make a true statement to us. Jesus is about to tell us something that is absolutely 100% true. What is that true statement? That there are some standing here. Remember, Jesus in this context is talking to his disciples who would have been standing in front of him. He's been teaching them about discipleship in verses 34 through 38. He says, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. That word death. It's something that we see a lot in the context that we just noted. Like we said in verse 31, Jesus is talking about his own death. When Jesus talks to his disciples about discipleship in verses 34 through 38, he has a lot to say about death, doesn't he? Look at verse 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and what? Take up his cross. What were you doing in the first century when you took up your cross? You were going to die. You were going to be executed. Jesus says, have such a dedication to me that you'd be willing to die for me. He talks about in verse 35, those who would save their lives will lose them, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save them. And then he goes on in verse 36 and 37 to talk about how there is nothing in this world that we can trade in equal value for our souls or our lives, depending on how you translate that word. Not even the entire world is worth the cost of our souls. And then verse 38, Jesus talks about the end of time. The day when the Son of Man will come in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. When you look at this context, Jesus has talked a lot about death. Not just Himself, but also with His disciples. It seems that Jesus is hinting to them that this is going to be their end. It's not only that Jesus is going to be a martyr, not only is Jesus going to die, but one day his disciples are going to die. One day they are going to be martyred. They're going to lay their lives down for Jesus' sake and for the sake of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then you look in Mark chapter 9 and verse 1, and Jesus tells his disciples that something is going to take place before they die. Yes, their death is coming. They need to take up their crosses. They need to realize whoever loses their lives for Jesus' sake and the gospel's sake will save them. That you can't exchange your life or your soul for anything else. But know this, that before you die, Jesus tells his disciples, something is going to take place. Before you taste death, 
you are going to see the kingdom of God come with power. Jesus tells his disciples, this is something you're going to experience. This is something you're going to witness. God's kingdom coming to earth with power. The question is, what does that mean? The coming of the kingdom of God with power. There are at least two main options for what this could mean. There are some who suggest that Jesus is talking about his second coming. Because when you look at verse 38, the end of Mark chapter 8, that's what he's talking about when the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Some believe that Jesus in Mark chapter 9 and verse 1 is talking about when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness on the day when he returns and life as we know it comes to an end. He's telling his disciples, within your lifetime you can expect me to come. Within your lifetime, you can expect my return. Well, there are some problems with that kind of thinking, aren't there? Number one, looking at this logically, Jesus hasn't returned yet. Jesus did not return. He did not come during the lives of his disciples, during the lives of his apostles. And then you look a little bit deeper in Matthew, the 24th chapter, in verse number 36, Jesus states that the Father is the only one who knows when the second coming is going to take place. Not the angels, or look at this, not even the Son knows when the Son is going to return. And so if Jesus doesn't know when he's going to return, why would he place a time limit on it in Mark chapter 9 and verse 1? Doesn't make sense, does it? It doesn't add up. If Jesus doesn't know the day when he's going to return, why would he tell his disciples in Mark chapter 9 it's going to happen before you die? And so it seems to me that is an option that we can dismiss. I don't believe that's what Jesus is talking about here. The second option, the one that I want to suggest to you, is that here Jesus is talking about the inauguration of his spiritual kingdom. And when we talk about Jesus' spiritual kingdom, we're talking about the church. In Mark chapter 9 and verse 1, Jesus is telling his disciples that you're going to witness this. You're going to witness the kingdom of God come to earth with power. And that kingdom of God coming to earth with power is Jesus' spiritual kingdom, what we today call the church, the assembly of those who belong to Jesus, the assembly of those who have been saved by his blood. If you go back to Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 18, the Bible says that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. You know another way we could say that? Another way we could say that is this Jesus is the king over his spiritual kingdom, the church. And I believe that's exactly what Jesus is referring to in Mark chapter 9 and verse 1. Telling his disciples, in your lifetime, the kingdom of God is going to come to earth. And it's going to happen in a powerful way. We see that happening in the coming of his church. This is something that goes back to the Old Testament. When you go to Isaiah, the second chapter, and you look at verses 2 and 3... Isaiah says, it shall come to pass, so we're looking towards the future. Isaiah's not talking about something now, but he's looking in the days that are coming. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established and as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. 
Notice what Isaiah is predicting there. Just a couple of highlights from what he says in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. He says that the house of the Lord is going to be established. And what's going to happen? All nations are going to flow to it. Where is the house of the Lord going to be established? He talks about the city of Jerusalem. He talks about Zion and how the word of God is going to proceed from there. Then we build on that by going to Daniel, the second chapter. In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of a statue, an image that has four different parts. Daniel interprets those four different parts as referring to four different kingdoms. The first part refers to the Babylonians, chapter 2, verses 37 and 38. Then the kingdom of the Medo-Persians, chapter 2 and verse 39. Then the kingdom of the Greeks in verse 39. Then the fourth kingdom is the Romans, the kingdom of Rome, in chapter 2, verses 40 through 43. But then notice how he follows that up in chapter 2 and verse 44. He says, in the days of those kings... Talking about the days of the Roman kings, the days of the Roman Empire, he says the God of heaven will set up a what? A kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Here's what Daniel has to say, that there's going to be these four main kingdoms, but in the days of the fourth kingdom, in the days of the Roman Empire... God's going to establish a kingdom. And this kingdom is going to be unlike every other kingdom. It's a kingdom that's going to be eternal. It's never going to be destroyed. It will stand forever. It's a kingdom that's going to be exalted and victorious over all other kingdoms in the world. Then we go to the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 16 and verse number 18, Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Peter has just made a powerful confession as to who Jesus is. Jesus asked him, who do you say that I am? And he said what? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, based on that solid bedrock confession, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell, or some translations, the gates of Hades, will never prevail against it. In many ways, that's a similar promise to what we find in Daniel chapter 2 and verse number 44. Jesus promises to build His church. And once Jesus builds His church, it's going to be victorious. Once Jesus builds His church, it will never go out of existence. Then you have Acts chapter 1 and verse number 8. Jesus tells His apostles shortly before His ascension, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses. He says, and this could be a good outline of the book of Acts. He says it will start in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Go back to Mark chapter 9 and verse number 1. How is the kingdom of God going to come? It's going to come with power. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. What are the apostles going to receive when the Holy Spirit comes upon them? They are going to receive power. So when did that happen? When did the kingdom of God come with power? When did the apostles receive this power when the Holy Spirit came upon them? Well, you don't have to read very far. You go to Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. In context, this is in the city of Jerusalem. 
And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. There's the fulfillment of Acts chapter 1 and verse number 8. The apostles are filled with power. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. They are prepared to go out and preach the gospel to thousands of Jews on the day of Pentecost, a feast day in the city of Jerusalem. Acts 2 and verse 5, the very next verse says that there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Does that recall something that we read just a few minutes ago from the second chapter of Isaiah? What did Isaiah say about the house of the Lord? It's going to be established in the city of Jerusalem. The word of God is going to come out of the city of Jerusalem. And all nations are going to flow to it. What's happening in Acts chapter 2 and verse 5? What do you have? You have Jews from every nation under heaven gathered together in the city of Jerusalem. We're seeing the second chapter of Isaiah being fulfilled right in front of our eyes. Peter, we said in Isaiah 2 that the word of God is going to proceed from Jerusalem. In the majority of Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up to preach. And he preaches a powerful message. We oftentimes call it the first gospel sermon. He preaches about Jesus. He preaches about Jesus' life. Chapter 2 and verse 22 Jesus performed signs and miracles and wonders that they had seen and witnessed in Jerusalem. He talks about the death of Jesus. How yes, this happened by the predetermined plan of God, but also you took him by lawless hands and hung him on a cross. He talks about the resurrection of Jesus and how that fulfills Old Testament scripture in verses 24 through 32. Then he talks about the exaltation of Jesus, how Jesus has ascended and been exalted at the right hand of God and has poured out the things that they were seeing and hearing. He closes out his sermon in verse 36 by talking about the lordship of Jesus. Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. How did they respond to that message? Verse 37, they were cut to the heart and cried out to, to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? We're responsible for killing the Son of God. What do we need to do about this? And what did Peter tell them? Pretty straightforward answer. Repent. Change the way that you think. And be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter offered the invitation. What was the result? Verse number 41, those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost in A.D. 30, was the day that Mark chapter 9 and verse 1 is referring to. That is the day when the kingdom of God came to earth with power and the disciples, the apostles, not only witnessed it, they were a vital part of it. It was the day whenever God set up a kingdom during the time of the Romans. A kingdom that's never going to be destroyed. A kingdom that will ultimately be victorious. Daniel 2 and verse 44. It's a day when the word of God proceeded from Jerusalem. And all nations flowed into the house of the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 2. It's the day when Jesus built his church. And from that day forward the gates of Hades not prevailing against it. In Matthew, the 16th chapter, 
Acts chapter 2 is the day that Jesus is referring to in Mark chapter 9 and verse 1. The day when the kingdom of God came to earth with power. What's so amazing about that is that Jesus invites us into this kingdom. Isn't that awesome to think about? The kingdom that was in the plan of God from before the foundation of the world. The spiritual kingdom that Jesus rules over as King of kings and Lord of lords. He wants us to be a part of it. He invites us to be a part of this kingdom. Consider the privilege of being a part of Jesus' kingdom. You go to Colossians 1 verses 13 and 14. And Paul says that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That word transferred. It's like transferring money from bank accounts. Hopefully going from your checking account to savings account, right? That's what we like to see. Here it says that we've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus. The place where we have redemption. The place where we are forgiven. What a privilege that is. What a blessing that is. Philippians 3 verses 20-21 through 21 talks about how now our citizenship is in heaven. Before we are citizens of any physical kingdom, we are citizens of Jesus' spiritual kingdom. We're waiting for Him to come. The day when He will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. Revelation 1 verses 5 and 6 answers a couple of different questions for us. Question number one, we asked these at the beginning of our lesson. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the ruler of kings on earth. Well, based on that, what has Jesus done for us? Verse 6, He has made us to be a kingdom. What a blessing, what a privilege to be a part of the kingdom of Christ. But not everybody's a part of this kingdom. That's a sad reality that we have to face. There are some requirements to entering into Jesus' kingdom. There are some things that we have to do in order to be a part of Jesus' kingdom. One of those is repentance. Matthew chapter 3 verses 1 and 2, John the Baptist or Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17, they both preach the same message verbatim. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. At that point, the kingdom of heaven had not come with power yet. It was something they were still looking forward to. And so to prepare for that kingdom, Jesus and John the Baptist instruct people to repent. If we're going to enter into that kingdom, then we have to repent. We have to change the way we think so that will change the way that we live. We have to have a willingness to let go of those sins that cling so closely. You have to be baptized to be a part of Jesus' kingdom. Jesus said that. Truly, truly, I say to you, John 3 and verse 5, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. There are no exemptions there. He says, unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you don't get to be a part of this kingdom. Now go back to Acts, the second chapter, on the day when the kingdom was established. What did Peter tell them to do when they asked the question, what shall we do? Repent and be baptized. It's the same message, isn't it? If we want to be a part of Jesus' kingdom, that's a message that we have to obey. And then once I'm a part of Jesus' kingdom, it's amazing how it changes my life. When we live in Jesus' kingdom, when that's who we are, when that's what we're about, we are going to be completely transformed from the inside out. For instance, when I'm a part of Jesus' kingdom, I'm going to seek it first. Seek first the kingdom of God 
and His righteousness. Jesus says in Matthew 6 and verse 33, when I'm a part of Jesus' kingdom, I'm going to live in humility. Jesus says that's how you become the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is by humbling yourself like a child. Matthew chapter 18 and verse number 4. When we're a part of Jesus' kingdom, we're going to do all that we can to flee from sin. Because we know, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Not the sexually immoral, the idolatrous, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's a beautiful promise for Jesus' disciples in Mark chapter 9 and verse 1, and a beautiful reality for us. The kingdom of God has come to earth with power, and Jesus invites us to be a part of it. Maybe it's the case that where you are tonight, you need to make the decision to become a part of that kingdom. It's not just that we want you to do that. Jesus wants you to do that, to be a part of His kingdom, to become a part of His kingdom through repentance and baptism. Maybe you're not living faithfully to that kingdom. Maybe you're struggling this weekend and you need the prayers of your brothers and sisters. We'd love to help you with that. If you're living as an active part of Jesus' kingdom, I want to encourage you to continue to do that. Continue to be grateful to God for the blessings that He's given and live out that gratitude and faithfulness every single day. If we can help you tonight, we would love that privilege as together we stand and sing.